So if you have your Bibles, turn back to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. I want to start off with a simple question this morning. It's a simple question. Have you ever had a situation in your life that you were working on a project or something specifically that you wanted to get accomplished, whether it be something for your family, for your company, maybe even for the church, and God called you to something specifically, and you met opposition? And that opposition could have come in different forms. It could have been somebody making a snide remark about what are you doing? You don't need to worry about that. It could have been opposition in the sense of you feeling insecure that you're actually doing this task that God's called you to. Or maybe even in a simple form or fashion, you found yourself struggling to see whether you could actually complete the task. You see, every one of us at different points in our lives meet opposition. The difference is in how we answer that opposition. Everybody has opposition. There's not a single one of us that's lived on this earth that has not faced circumstances that have been difficult for us to deal with, and particularly people that are sometimes difficult for us to deal with. Last time I checked, all of us have a proclivity to hurt one another at times. And because we have that proclivity, what ends up happening is we tend to be defensive when somebody confronts us. Normally, most of us do not respond with grace when we're first confronted. Most of us respond with a wall that we put up, whether it be a wall of walking away, separation, I don't want to talk to you, or a wall that simply says, sure, thanks, but I really don't want to talk to you right now. We get to a place many times in our lives where God calls us to certain things, and when we face opposition, we have certain responses. Well, the text this morning is really going to be a text that gives us the answer to opposition. Because all of us need an answer to opposition. If you're not facing opposition now, I promise you, you will. And it might not happen very far from now. It may be very soon that we face more opposition than we expect or anticipate. And the question for us is, how are we going to answer that opposition? Well, look in your Bible here in in, in Nehemiah chapter 6. We're going to be looking at three things specifically in this text. We're going to look at number one, the request, verses 1 through 4. Number two, the accusation, verses 5 through 9. And number three, the disclosure, verses 10 through 14. So number one, the request, verses 1 through 4. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. (laughs) Interesting. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. We see here that Nehemiah is coming right back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. There was also a project that had already happened in rebuilding the temple, but the fortification of the city had not been completed yet. In fact, what's interesting is he's a cupbearer to Artaxerxes, whose stepmother, by the way, is Esther. 
For those of you that are wondering why some of this reading may seem to be going back and forth, it's chronological for a reason. So in hearing about the destruction of Jerusalem and ultimately the neglect of rebuilding the wall, Nehemiah is convicted to return and finish the task. He requests an opportunity to come back and rebuild the actual walls to the city. God providentially always sends people in authority to pave a way for his people. Always does. Think back to Moses, right? He was a prince in Egypt. He goes into exile, and guess what God does? He brings him right back to deliver his people. In fact, what's interesting and incredible here is that Nehemiah does the rebuilding of the wall in a mere 52 days. 52 days. You see that in verse 15 later in the chapter. Nehemiah hears that the temple has been rebuilt, but the walls are still in ruins, fortifying the city. So he's broken over that fact. In fact, he mourns over that. But instead of just mourning, he does something. He acts. He prays to God, and then he goes and acts. I think there's a lesson right there to be learned. It's very easy to see the problems in society and to go, God, please, Jesus, come back. I don't want to be here anymore. Maybe the response should be, Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me do with what I have left? Maybe come, Lord Jesus, with an abdication of our responsibility is not the right response. The construction here is well on its way, and the king gave him full permission to go ahead and rebuild that wall. And what's interesting is that just like in any of our lives, there's always somebody or something that opposes what we're trying to do for God. It always happens. It shouldn't surprise you that when you go about a task for the Lord that there will be opposition. It shouldn't shock you. It should not come as a surprise, but yet it does to many of us. How many of us have gone through that multiple times and then it happens again and we're almost still surprised that it happened? It should never come as a surprise. Opposition's always there when somebody wants to do the things of God. So Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshep were the three main opponents to this rebuilding effort. And it's more than likely that they were actually the regional governors of that area under the king of Persia. To them, the rebuilding of the wall was not something they wanted because ultimately what that meant is Jerusalem would then be protected again. They wanted the walls to be out of the way so that if they needed to ever take it over again, they could quickly do so. There would be no fortification for that city. In fact, you see earlier in the book that Nehemiah is greatly, they were greatly disturbed by what Nehemiah was doing. And they wanted right off the bat to stop that rebuilding project. Nehemiah is actually in this text just about finished with actually rebuilding the wall. But these men wanted to call him away as a distraction to bring him to ruin by whatever means necessary. They wanted to, how, how, does, how do they say it here? They want to do him, do him harm. And ultimately, look, look, what, look what it says in the text. It's very interesting. It says, come, let us meet together. Let's, let's have a meeting, Nehemiah. Let's just have a meeting. He's about done. What does he need a meeting for? He's about done. Notice a few things here especially. Number one, they were persistent in their attempt to take down Nehemiah. How many times did they return to him with the same, let's have a meeting, request? Four times. They're more persistent in stopping Nehemiah than we are sometimes in doing a task and completing it. 
It's amazing how most of us naturally are stronger in our resistance to something than in our fighting for something. It's amazing how quick it is for us to put the hand out that we don't want to deal with this person or this situation, but to accept it readily and say, no matter how hard it gets, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to get it done. Nehemiah, by the way, here is not distracted, but he stays in the court to finish the job. He stays the course. Here's what's scary, and what most of us don't pay attention to is the fact that God has called each of us to specific tasks in the kingdom. And because he has, one of the ones that we always miss is the fact that he's called you to make disciples. This is going to sound like something that I repeat all the time as a pastor, but that is your goal, to be a disciple of Jesus and to bring others to faith. To make disciples is a commandment in the Great Commission. And many times the church is doing everything else but prioritizing making disciples in in their community. They will go to political rallies. They will go to public hearings. And you know what has never been proclaimed many times? The gospel message. Shame on us. Shame on us Christians when we don't make the gospel the priority. Shame on us when we want to fight for our rights before we want to fight for the gospel. Shame on us when we think other things are more important than souls being lost and on their way to hell. Here's what's crazy. We get so easily distracted by all this to the point that we don't even notice that it's been weeks since we've shared Christ with somebody. It's been weeks. We haven't talked about Jesus with anybody for a while. It's been weeks since we've helped another in their walk with Christ. Intentionally, I'm going to come alongside this person. I'm going to walk with them. It's been weeks, maybe months, maybe years since we've opened God's word consistently and faithfully and said, Lord, what do you have for me? You see, some of you, you, you've been in the church for a long time. You've just gotten so used to it. Your relationship with God is just like your relationship with people. You get used to them after a while and you just end up taking it for granted. All of us, when we first got married, right, we had the spark, right? If any of us that understand what I'm talking about, please, I'm assuming I'm not the only one. We're excited. We can't wait. We're starting a family. And then as the years go by, for some reason, we just get so used to it. Does that not happen in our walk with God? Well, I've been saved for 20 years. Then where did the passion go? What happened? It seems like forever since we've prayed for our lost loved ones. So many of us, we get to a place in our walk with God that we take things for granted to the extent that we pray for everything but the salvation of lost people. You pray for your your money to be set with all this stuff going on. You pray for your, your family's health. You pray for all the things in the church to be intact as far as the building and all that. But have we been praying for lost souls to be saved? I'm convicted by the very thing I'm preaching here. Our opposition ultimately comes in three different ways, okay? Number one, the world. That means the world system. The things that are going on politically, behind the scenes, and many times the things that are taught in our society. The political landscape that's driven by a selfish ambition of man. The flesh. That's the inner sin that we personally struggle with that we don't like to admit 
resides within us. Or when we do admit it, we don't care to battle it enough. We give up quickly. I've already messed up multiple times. What's the point of trying anymore? You know you've been there, and I have. What's the point of trying? I've already fallen so many times. That's not the response of faith. In fact, the just man falls seven times and gets back up. The argument's not that he doesn't fall. He does fall, but he gets back up. So if you're down and you're not getting back up, maybe you want to check whether you're living biblical principles out. Number three, the devil. This is a real spiritual being that's wreaking havoc in our society. And you know what he actually ends up using? The world system and the flesh. He tempts you away from the things that God wants you to do. Let me, let me pause for a second to make this clear. The devil is real. Make no mistake about that. The moment you and I believe he's just a figment of our imagination or someone conjured him up is the moment that we are easy, most easily deceived by him. He does not have the same power that Jesus or God does in being omnipotent and omniscient. He doesn't know everything about you. He can't read your thoughts as God can. But he knows your practice. He knows your habits. He knows when you're alone is when you're most tempted. In fact, he does a masterful job of working in the world system and tempting our flesh to give in to sin. What many of us forget is the very opposition we see from others in not living out what God has called us to do is many times really a spiritual battle behind the scenes. Do you realize that some people in the church, when they oppose you, it's not really them, it's actually Satan or other things that are going on in their life that are working behind the scenes? Let me repeat one phrase here. Behind the physical is always the spiritual. Behind the physical is always the spiritual. So when you have a conflict with somebody, you need to realize where that conflict really comes from. It's not just that because the person didn't have their cup of coffee, although that may make a difference. Okay? There's something deeper going on. There's a heart that is wicked, that needs Christ to consistently, constantly cleanse. One of the most damaging things that can be done by those opposing the work of God in a church or a saint personally is to tell them that they're, what they're doing for God is just not that important. It's just not that important what you're doing for God. I don't know why you try so hard. You ever have somebody tell you you need to take a break from what God's called you to do? I can't list the amount of times I've heard that phrase. Well, you just need to take it easy. Relax, you know? It's like, I'm not a candle. I'm not burning out, okay? I'm sure you can. I know. I'm probably being a little prideful in that statement. But sometimes what ends up happening is we get so overwhelmed that people just want to straight In helping us, what they're doing is actually hurting what, they, what we're doing for God. Because what happens is we get convinced of these kind of statements. It's just not that important that you read the Word today. I mean, after all, you went to church on Sunday. Why do you need to read the Word of God today? I mean, God understands, right? He knows you're tired. It's not that important that you make things right with them. I mean, after all, they hurt you, right? Like, they did this to you. Why would you really need to make things right with them? It's just not that important to teach your children the things of God. I mean, you go to church on Sunday, right? You send them to a Christian school. You, you see how that works? It's subtle. It's always subtle, right? It's, it's not just like, come right out and tell you this. It's like, hey, you know what? Just 
Don't take it too serious. Why are you taking your faith so serious, believer? Why do, you, why do you pursue the things God wants you to so much? Relax. Take it easy. It's not that important that your kids go to this school. You know, I know, you know somebody else that's gone to another school and they, they turned out just fine. Why would you be concerned about that? You see how this works? There's always something, a battle behind the scenes on these things. It's just not that important that you tell them about Christ. They already know you're a Christian. Just live it out, right? Just be, a, just be a Christian. Live it out. You don't need to say anything. They know you're saved. I don't find anybody in the Bible that reached anybody for Christ without speaking. Sure, they lived a different life, but they had to speak the truth. These are all distractions from the things that are most important that God calls us to. And one of the things that we have to be reminded of is that we are to make Christ known to others. We should respond just like Nehemiah does here in stating that I can't stop what I've been called to. There's no excuse for it. No excuses. And just so, just so you know, opposition won't stop just because one strategy has been unleashed on you. Just because one strategy has been unleashed on you and me does not mean that opposition stops. In fact, there's always another angle that will be played. Look at number two. The accusation, verses 5 through 9. Look at what it says. Then Senballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. Now, instead of just a meeting, we, we need to start making assumptions here, right? And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. We're not just going to meet, we're going to consult together. Then I sent to him, saying, no such things as you say are being done, but you have invented them in your own heart. For they were always trying to make us afraid, saying, their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. When the request to leave and meet is met with a response of, I've got... I've got to finish this project. I don't have time. I don't have any excuses. I can't be distracted by meetings here. I'm almost done. When that's met four times with the same response, the next response is an accusation, and if you will, a questioning of motives. A questioning of motives. Nehemiah is questioned about the reason or motive behind him rebuilding the wall to the point of stating here that he plans to rebel and be setting himself up as king. Nehemiah, we suggest that you come talk to us about this. We, we, we've heard some rumors. We think that this is what you're really up to. One of the troubling things here is that they went right after Nehemiah to the point of questioning his motives. And not just questioning his motives, but stating what his motives were. I think there's a difference there, too. You can question, and then you can also make an assumption on someone's motives. 
We look at these people in disgust when we read these texts, right? But how could we, how could they call into question what Nehemiah is doing? I mean, after all, he's rebuilding the wall for God, right? He, he's doing this for the nation of Israel. But do we not do the same thing? Do we not do the same thing? We do the very same thing to others, whether we like to admit it or not. And we do it a lot more frequently than we like to admit. Let me explain. Be very practical. Why did they post that picture on Facebook? I mean, don't they know nobody else gets to do what they get to do? Like, why are they doing that? Are they just showing off? What, do they think they're better than all of us? Must be nice. You don't think you've ever questioned motives? Maybe it happened last night, just don't admit it today. What about this? Why do they work so many hours? Don't they have time to spend with their family? Don't they care about their kids? Maybe you don't know that that family is in a lot of debt that they're trying to crawl out of so they can get back on track and actually spend quality time once again. It's amazing to me the things that a lot of people have gone through that they still question other people and their motives on. As if some of you haven't worked overtime before. If you haven't, man up if you're a man. Well, they just help out because they want everybody to see what they're doing. They just always like to show off. They like to be the center of attention. That's why they help. No? Maybe you have a jealousy. Maybe you need to check your motives before you go checking someone else's. Ah, I, don't think that, I, don't, I don't think they need to give as much as they do. I don't think they need to give as much as they do. Why? Because you yourself are very stingy with your money? That's why others shouldn't give? If everybody in the church gave as you did, would we have a church in existence today? God blesses givers, by the way. He blesses those that give because God himself is a giving God. He gave you something that's more valuable than the money you have in your wallet. And the fact that you complain about that shows where your priorities are. They told me something about myself because they're judging me. Maybe that person actually is looking out for your best interest. Maybe that person actually wants you to succeed at whatever it is that God's called you to. Maybe that person wants you to mature in your walk with Christ when you've been faltering for years and doing the same thing and wondering why you're getting the same results. Maybe, just maybe, that person went through the same thing that you went through. And now they're here to warn you. That's what I love about the book of Proverbs. Solomon's warning his son about all the things that he went through. And just because you don't know exactly what it is that you're supposed to do in the situation does not mean that the person calling you out on something is not there to help you walk faithfully with Christ. By the way, be careful who you ascribe good motives to, believers. Because we don't just ascribe bad motives, we ascribe good motives to people too. In fact, People ascribed good motives to those that people expected were the most righteous, but they actually had bad motives. Pharisees. Oh, they're wonderful. They love God. Look at how they dress. Look at how they walk. Look at how many times they pray. 
Look at how they do this. Look at how they do that. And those people completely had the wrong motives. You know why? Because they were going after the praise of men rather than God. So be careful in falsely implying motives, whether they're good or bad to people. By the way, be sure to check your own motives before you check others. Start there first. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it just because I'm getting paid to do this? Is it because this person asked me to do this? Or is it because God's called me to do this? And regardless of what anybody says, I'm going to do it. So that's what we do to others. But how do we respond? And this, is, this is where we need to be very practical. How do we respond when someone questions our motives? How do we respond? Do we get angry? Resentful? Whether they're right or wrong about our motives? How dare you question why I'm doing this? You ever done that? No? Do we stop doing what God's called us to? Many disciples of Christ stopped following him when they were met by opposition because others questioned their motives. And that's some of you in here this morning. You stopped doing certain things for God because someone questioned why you're doing it. Well, I'm not doing it because I didn't get the response that I wanted. Some of us have stopped serving God in certain areas because someone said something about the motive behind why we serve, and we decide it's not worth it anymore. It's not worth it with the criticism. Just so you know, you shouldn't stop based on criticism. There are critics in the Bible throughout. In fact, David was questioned by his own brother before he went to battle against Goliath, because little brother was showing big brother up. And some of you, the reason why you don't do certain things is because you don't want to show somebody up and you think that that's going to be the motive that they think you have. Do you really care what God thinks or you really do care what people think? Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees as to why he healed on the Sabbath. I mean, Jesus, why did you have to do it on the Sabbath? Couldn't you just pick the other days of the week? Both are examples of people that did it for the glory of God, not just self-promotion. Some of us stop doing what God's called us to because we do not get the thank you that we think we deserve. And because we didn't feel appreciated, we quit altogether. Look, I know this is a big one in the church. I know it's a big one in our jobs. It's, it's a big one in our families. When you and I do certain things and we don't get the thank you or the appreciation for what we've done, we many times stop doing what it is that God's called us to. Over a simple thank you, we stopped. So what was our motivation? Let's be honest. What was our motivation? Was it the praise of men? Is that why we quit? What a sad excuse for a follower of Christ to give up because someone didn't appreciate what they did. Look, if you're looking for someone to thank you and appreciate you every time, then you don't need to look further than Christ and see the appreciation he got. 
How would you like it? Let's put ourselves in the scenario for a second. If you went about healing people, helping those that are in need, and then being crucified because you declared you were Christ, and you really were God. How would you like it if you cared deeply for the hearts of men and those very people that you cared for put you on a cross? There's a lack of appreciation there, right? He was very much appreciated by the crowds, right? No sooner do people say Hosanna than they say crucify him the next week. What was Jesus' response on the cross, by the way, when people didn't show him appreciation? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Hey, if you're a disciple of Jesus, guess who you take the cue from? Not the person that's complaining next to you. You can find plenty of them in every organization on this earth. You take your cue from Christ and say, Father, forgive them. That person made a horrible comment. They didn't even know what they were talking about. Or he just doesn't even know what's going on. He's obviously clueless on this one. Father, forgive him. If you all pray that way about me, sometimes I understand because I am sometimes clueless on certain things going on in your life. I really am. But I promise you, I really want to make sure that we live this stuff out consistently. It's very easy to preach. It's hard to live. You can care for others without enabling them. But you don't stop caring, believer. You can care for others without enabling them, but you, can, you don't have to stop caring for them. The father didn't stop caring for his son when we, he went out to enjoy life apart from the home. He never stopped caring. We should be the most patient, loving, criticized people the world has ever met because we're followers of Christ. Because we don't stop sharing the good news that Jesus saves no matter what it costs us. Our motive is to reach the lost with the gospel, not to get people to like us and to say thank you. If you're about the business of sharing the gospel with people so people like you, you're in the wrong business. The gospel message is not popular. And it's when it's proclaimed, it's not met with everybody embracing it and loving you even more for it. If you were to take a percentage of how, how many people appreciate when the gospel's preached to them and how many don't, it's overwhelmingly they don't. How dare you question where I'm going when I die? How dare you tell me Jesus is the only way? I don't think that's right. Most people that we respect the most will tell us the hard truth that we need to hear. And we may not have appreciated in the beginning, but we know as time goes on, that person cared for us more than those that kept being nice to us without telling us the truth. We all have wrongs that need to be corrected. And just because we don't like to hear it doesn't mean we don't need to. There may never be the result that we would like to see. That doesn't mean we stop doing what God's called us to. We don't stop because it seems pointless. Do we quit because we've tried for so long and we didn't get that result we wanted? L let, me, let me go a step further. I realize I'm raising my boys. 
with my wife. We have three boys. And when they're adults, I don't know what they'll be. I don't see that far ahead in the future. But should any of them walk away from God, should I stop caring for them? Should I give up because I've prayed for so many years? Some of you need to hear this. You've given up on certain things in your life simply because you tried so long and it didn't get, you didn't get the result you wanted. Anything worth fighting for takes time. It takes time. Rarely do you get a quick result on something. Maybe if we're faithful in the little things, God gives us the big stuff that we get. Maybe the reason you're not seeing an answer in the bigger stuff is because you're not faithful in the little stuff. And you're asking from, for God to do whatever he can on the big stuff that you're not even faithful with the little things that he's called you to. Nehemiah has a simple answer to this in his defense. He says, you're making all of this up. There's no truth to what you're saying. I know it's not true. And believer, when you and I face opposition, if it's not true, you don't need to give it the time of day. You don't need to be bothered by the fact that so-and-so said this and they question your motives and they're wrong. You can simply respond, it's just not true. Nehemiah knows why he's doing what he's doing. And that's enough for him not to feel guilty over what he's doing. And you shouldn't feel guilty either, particularly if you're doing it for the right reason. Number three, the disclosure. Verses 10 through 14, look at what it says. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, and we're going back to a meeting, but this one's a little different. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had sent him at all, had not sent him at all, but he pr pronounced his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sinballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired that I should be afraid and act the, that way in sin, so that they may have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works, and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. Nehemiah is actually warned here of a potential plot to kill him. Except the problem with that plot that's being uncovered before him is it's a false plot. It's not really going to happen. What this has done here for Nehemiah is really to get him to trip up. It's really to trip him up. This message that's being sent to him is the fact that people are coming to assassinate you and you need to go hide in the temple. Let's go hide in the temple. We'll close the doors. Make sure that you're safe. The simple goal for this trip was ultimately to get Nehemiah to sin and to break the Mosaic law when it comes to entering the holy place where only priests could go. By doing this, Nehemiah was going to dishonor God and potentially face capital punishment, which would have resulted in that project probably being destroyed. Seems like a godly statement here, right? Let's meet together in the house of God. I mean, most, most people would be like, well, that's a good statement. Let's go meet at the temple. That's a good godly thing to say. 
except when it's used in a conniving way to trip somebody up. Any person even vaguely familiar with Scripture would say that it sounded like a helpful proposal for protection. What makes this dangerous is just because part of the statement seems good does not mean that it wasn't blasphemy for Nehemiah to enter in and break God's law. The goal was to discredit Nehemiah and be able to accuse him of a legit sin, not just a perceived sin. You see where they're going here? Now we're going to make sure you sin, and we have proof for that. Now we're going to have proof that you've done something wrong. It isn't just your motives in your head. We're going to actually have evidence now that you've broken God's law. The reason Nehemiah actually realized the prophecy couldn't have come from God is because it denied the Word of God. Biblical advice must align with the Scripture for it to be biblical. Seems like common sense, but it's not so common anymore. A lot of people offer their opinions and advice in the church apart from the Word of God and declare that God wants them to do that without actually checking to see if Scripture actually says that. It could very well come from Satan and you and I not realize it because we haven't been checking against the Word of God. Many Christians are easily deceived by other Christians because they rarely spend any time in the Word of God. You don't know what's false if you don't know what's true. If you want to know what a counterfeit bill is, you need to know what the genuine is first. As one author put it, our churches are filled with Christians who are idling and intellectual neutral. As Christians, their minds are going to waste. One result of this is an immature, superficial faith. People who simply ride the roller coaster of emotional experience are cheating themselves out of a deeper and richer Christian faith by neglecting the intellectual side of that faith. They know little of the riches of the deep understanding of Christian truth, of the confidence inspired by the discovery that one's faith is objectively true. In fact, one of the saddest things in the church today is that culture shapes them more than God's Word does. Culture shapes many believers more than God's Word does. And this is where many church experiences turn into heresy. Because they just go through certain things and they put a Christian label on it as if it's true. Well, I feel like God is totally okay with my lifestyle choice. He just loves me the way that I am. There's nothing that I need to change. Just as I am. That's right. I just feel that that church has been wrong for so long about this. There's, there's no way that's true. These are all just phrases of people that have not had a closer walk with God in His Word. And they're deceived by personal experience. It doesn't matter how good or bad your experience is, it's not checked against the Word of God. It can't be verified as true. Oh, it's a true experience. It actually happened, but is it biblical? Is it biblical? Is that the advice you should be offering others just because it somehow worked out for you? I can't tell you the amount of times I've heard people give garbage, garbage opinion to another believer that doesn't have anything to do with the Word of God because it somehow worked out for them. That's because of God's grace it worked out for you. It's in spite of your, hopeful, your helpless sinlessness. Sinfulness, sorry. God works out so many things in our lives providentially. And in spite of our choices, he works those things out. 
not because of them many times. That shouldn't prompt us to tell others because our experience worked out somehow that that's biblical. It should come no, to, no surprise to us that Christians with very little exposure to t- Scripture are very prone to falling into heresy and pulling in false philosophies from the world. When people come by to distract us, question our motives, or even intentionally come to make us sin, we need to respond as Nehemiah does here. I'm not changing the course. I'm going to keep building the wall. I'm going to finish this up. I'm almost done. And I'm going to turn this over to God to deal with. I'm going to bring it to God and ask Him to deal with it. You will have a lot more success as a follower of Christ if you ask your Heavenly Father to take care of it rather than trying to take care of it yourself. If you want to prove yourself to others and why you won't be distracted, your motives are pure, then you should never, and then you won't give in to sin, you need to turn it over to God ultimately. So in conclusion, I have one question. What's your answer to opposition? What's your answer to opposition? Remember, actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. A lot of us know what to say sometimes. But a lot of times our talk doesn't match the walk. Did you stop doing what you were doing that God called you to? Maybe you've quit doing what God's called you to because you didn't like the fact that you weren't appreciated. Someone questioned your motives. Maybe you need to get back up and obey what it is that God's called you to and not be distracted by all that. Not be concerned what others say. After all, doesn't God's opinion matter the most? Believer. Doesn't it? If it does, then why are you concerned with everybody else's? Did you respond when someone asks you about your motives in defense? Do you, do you typically do that? If you feel like you need to get defensive, maybe because someone dared to question your motive, maybe the reason you're so defensive is because you haven't realized what it means to be humble before God. We naturally all are defensive. Maybe we need to check our motives with God first before we check our motives with others and not worry about what others question about us. Or maybe you're the person that actually has kept doing what it is that God's called you to. Let me encourage you to keep going. Don't stop doing it just because somebody may oppose or you may have some conflict or maybe there's some distraction going on. You didn't skip a beat when God calls you to do it and you're going to keep going. Keep going. Continue being faithful. Whatever your typical response is, it's best to leave it to God to deal with people that oppose you. You and I have a lot of things out of our hands when it comes to the things going on in our culture. You can share an article, you can post about it on Facebook, but at the end of the day, what are you going to be able to do about it? About the only thing that I think many of us can do practically is having a firearm at our side. That's it. Apart from that, you really can't do much else. Raise your family. There will always be critics that oppose what it is that you do. Always. It doesn't stop. Just because you had critics last week does not mean that they don't appear this next week. Be careful when you become the critic. Let me finish with Colossians chapter 3. Look at what it says here, starting in verse 23. 
Very good words. This is actually from the Amplified Bible. It says this, whatever you do, whatever your task may be, work from the soul that is put in your very best effort as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing with all certainty that it is from the Lord, not from men, that you will receive the inheritance, which is your greatest reward. It is the Lord Christ whom you actually serve. Let's pray.